0: yo what is up welcome either once again or maybe for the first time to the where it went podcast where we are currently discussing the revelation records discography in chronological order jason what do we got yes. this week
1: this week we're talking about the in my Eyes lp the difference between revelation records number 67 released in 1998
0: we're in the 90s. All of this is in real time for us. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were me. all we were all active hardcore kids in bands, right? Jason, were you yes. in a band at this point?
1: Yes, I was. We had, oh yeah, your band played with this band, demo.
0: right? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Sick. You took us. And I uh, was even
2: a little high school band.
0: And you were an active crowd participant for this record, also, Greg. Um oh, yeah. I saw the band. Revtor? yep yeah, no I'm just gonna leave it at that I I saw him once uh, yeah, they, I, I would say they, they played we here, here I think at least twice they played the PCH Club I they know they that.
2: they would uh they talk about it in the interview that they uh-huh. had a lot of uh they had connections in California pretty early on so they yep. were playing out there doing long weekends um, for full transparency I mean, I, I, we'll we'll talk at the end of the episode too about yeah our,
0: for full transparency. In- As happens from time to time, I was not on this interview. But if you'd like to hear me talk to these two guys about this record, then the only way to do that, actually, is if you are a member of our Patreon, which you can access at www.whereitwentpodcast.com. There's some information about our podcast and also information about how to become a patron. But before we get into the interview, I think that it's time to... Not again. Not again. No, it's time to, get to get shout it. It's time to shout it. Out. No, it's time to fucking shout, shout it. Yeah, shout that. Greg, what do you got to shout this week?
2: Uh, well, once again, a, a bit of bow to this episode sponsor, Iodine Recordings. Uh, we talked last time, too, about the slip 30th anniversary. God bless them. Um, which just officially happened, too, in the beginning of February. Uh, was 30 years which is crazy Um, I didn't I didn't hear the record in 1993 but you know several years after a couple years after still in the 90s and um, it's just really I can't wait to get my hands on this deluxe one and look at this book Um, you know like we said it has writings from people from all types of bands Anthrax 108 uh, Cave-In um who caven are also doing a deluxe of their opus uh until your heart stops. Not on iodine though. Sorry. Got off track. But yeah, the um 30th anniversary. A lot of the versions are sold out, but I think there's still some standard ones left. But Iodine has um you know they've been they have some stuff from one line drawing which is Jonah from Far. Um her Heads on Fire, who we talked to, um, I guess, last year, uh, that has Joseph from Garrison in the band, my old buddy Jeff Dean. Um, and it looks like they're announcing some more stuff as we speak. So just check out iodinerecords.com and poke around and grab some stuff.
1: Support, Man, I, small,
2: support listened, indie labels. I listened to that one-line drawing
1: LP, the latest one they put out. It's really good. I think you'd like it. Great, oh, it's up your alley. It's on got iodine, good, yeah, I, it's got, yeah, got I good lyrics and um, yeah. And I looked on the I looked on the site and they and of course, as a person that loves shirts, they've got a good one line rolling shirt up there. So awesome, check it out.
0: Uh, Jason, you got anything to shout today?
1: Yeah, I mean, we talked to Damien today from Miis, and he's got a shop in Brooklyn called True Love Always. Uh, check out True Love Always BK. 191 Windsor Place in Brooklyn. I'd like to make it there sometime. I tried to the last time we were in New York, but didn't make it. And also, Pop spoke to us. He is a writer, as many of you know. He's got zines and some uh, photo photo zines up on his site, adultincorporated.com. And we didn't talk about it, but the photos for the difference between some of them were taken by Jessica Humphrey. She has a site called I Used to Be a Hardcore Girl on Instagram. Awesome photos from late nineties. So up and down the East coast, if you're interested in going down memory lane.
2: So I do think speaking of the interview, I think people are going to really enjoy. um, I mean, we've talked to pops before. It was awesome to meet Damien. I had reached out to Pete to have him on. And uh, unfortunately there was a scheduling conflict, but we will be talking to uh, Pete and Damien and pops for the second album which I won't give my opinions on, but Jason knows how I feel about the second record. So. What number
0: is that? Jason, man, what uh, 80. Is that? Oh, okay. so it's quite a ways away.
2: Yeah, so a bit of bow to Pete mm-hmm. um, and Anthony and Damien. And in my eyes, it was a amazing time for me in hardcore, and I can't wait to talk about it Great. after the episode. Straight mm-hmm. up, that really was our time. Mm-hmm. dude i i said I, I will wax nostalgic at the end yes mm-hmm. for sure all oh, right let's forget let's
0: us. get into the interview and then we can we can uh jibber yeah. jabber a lot after that so right now it's time to it. can
2: i kick it kick it, kick it.
1: Greg, you kicking it or am I kicking it?
2: You're kicking. You 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 thought of the, you thought of the right. opening question.
1: All right. What's up, everyone? Thanks for joining us for this episode. We're talking with Anthony Papalardo, Pops, and Damian from In My Eyes. Thanks for joining us. Is it fair to say that In My Eyes started due to a basketball jersey?
3: Yeah, that's totally. Well, beanies too. <laughs> <laughs> basketball Can you... this this is crossover um with the last episode I don't know if chronologically this will fit but with the the shelter episode with Steve Reddy because Steve Reddy was responsible for the basketballification of hardcore because he was getting those um champion jerseys really cheap and then he would screen them for bands and uh to your point one of the many 10-yard fight riffs where i I just think we would argue about anything you know because we were just all very different people or at least i was very different and that was a problem but uh it yeah there was an argument about making because we signed equal vision and steve was like i can make you basketball jerseys and beanies and i was like that's cool like i lightweight don't want that that's actually my fucking nightmare and it doesn't even make sense because we're like a foot like the sport crossover And then also like I know like beanies are fine now, but like at that time, if you were like a beanie band, you were kind of like like bio I remember seeing Biohazard and the dude had like a porn star beanie, and that really bummed me out. But I was also bummed out because I was at a biohazard show. But anyways, (laughs) like um, but yeah, that that is an accurate, that's an accurate way to start this because in my eyes started immediately after me getting kicked out of 10-yard fight partially because of basketball jerseys?
2: I felt always like in my eyes kind of took, so th- this whole era, there was a ton of, there was a lot of bands playing this sort of style, right? The, you know, cause we were coming off of the the mid 90s stuff, the, you know, the open e chuggy, slower stuff and some of the screamier stuff. But I did feel like in my eyes to me always seemed like Oh, this guy—he was in Ten Yard Fight because even I knew as a fan, you know, before I knew you. Kind of took the stuff he liked about being in that band, but refined it and made it uh, like less. Like there wasn't a gimmick with this, uh, and I'm not even saying gimmick in like a derogatory way. Like that was Ten Yard Fight's thing, the football thing. But um, I don't know. That that was
3: just the way I always looked at it. Like yeah, this was I a mean, very
2: refined
3: band. T- Ten Yard Fight was like it had all these different iterations because it started as like an in-joke with some friends. Um, Like my friend that I grew up with, my friend Aldo Fusco, we were coming back from one of those like like an early fest, like an 8 band show. And uh, we had gotten like one of the indecision photo zines and there was a photo of that fake band Gridiron. And he was like, oh, I want to do a band called Ten Yard Fight because his dad was like, Super like atypical, um, living in the basement glory days guy, like, and was mad that like his son wasn't a football star and that he dyed his hair and was like a skateboard freak. And so he thought, like, oh, it'll be funny. And it's kind of like a riff on Slapshot or whatever. And uh, so yeah, t- like Tenure Fight was very much a gimmick band, but then as people liked it, we were like, we either have to lean into the gimmick or lean into being a band. And I would say the last thing I recorded with them was the split seven inch. And I think there's like two songs on that, that I wrote most of, and those are kind of like the tightening of ideas up. And then that's sort of like the roots of in my eyes.
4: And so, I mean, for me, Tenure Fight was a really important band for me. And so, Greg, I don't know what you mean exactly by there were a lot of bands playing that style. In reference to like the Chugga Chugga or to the more like. Eastern so stuff.
2: more, I mean, retrospective. So at the time there wasn't, but like by the time that like in my eyes was really popping 97, 98, there were a ton of bands like yeah, that. And
4: it was one of those things that I think we were sort of part of that momentum, but Ten Yard Fight was a pretty crucial band. I think in the in the sense that there was like, I felt like there was like nothing going on. Uh, for me, like leaving Philly, it was like I saw Mouthpiece like a thousand times. <laughs> it was like Mouthpiece played every show. And Mouthpiece was like the band you could get to sing along to. You know, Ignite came to the East Coast. Those are big shows like H2O's album had dropped, I guess. But, you know, Philly, other than Ink and Dagger, I feel like we didn't really have any bands. We had a really good scene. And when I told people I was leaving to go to school in Boston, they were like, why are you going there? There's There's no scene there. And oh, fuck. And this was 95-96. So and they were kind of right. Like I like the first, my first like half of school year, of my school year, I met no hardcore kids. I was just skating. And um, I ended up meeting Anthony and like Rama through skateboarding. But I remember I went to like in into another show at like a big club, like by myself. And I saw Ben Shusett there, who was the drummer of Tenure Fight, and he kind of blew me off. He was just like, yeah, see you around. <laughs> like, no people. You know? Uh <laughs> But when and so Ten Yard Fight was like just starting to play shows, I'd say maybe around, or like closer. And then suddenly it was like Ten Yard Fight was the first like was sort of the first band I was bros with. The first time I was ever inside a studio was like recording backups for the seven inch, the Hardcore Pride seven inch. I'm like all over that seven inch like jumping on, on top of the crowd and stuff. And um, I felt like once they once tenure fight was getting that momentum that you started to see it in other places too, you know, definitely New Jersey or wherever else. And so it was kind of a crazy thing for me. I very much felt kind of like stuck in the middle when Anthony left. But when he asked me to join uh you know to play bass for in my eyes, it was like, oh my God, like no question, like I'm gonna do
2: this. Were you in well, bands before that?
4: So I wasn't really like the only thing I had ever done, you know, I I, I took guitar lessons I knew, you know, I knew power when I was like 14 and I had like a rudimentary sort of ability. I, I did a thing with Robbie Red Cheeks once like called DFJ. We played like, you know, three cover songs or something at the church. But I really had never been in a band before. And uh, Anthony asked me to play bass. I didn't even own a bass. So, um, you know, when he asked me to join the band, I was like, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess I can do it. And I just like. Just to remember one piece of advice Anthony gave me. He was like, "Just hit the strings really fucking hard," and <laughs> and that stuck with me through like my whole bass playing career. I was like, just like, just just pound, you know. Um, but yeah, that that's pretty much what started me in music. Was Anthony asking me to join the band?
2: Wow. So then so that's you. Oh, go ahead, Jason. How long
1: was it before you go in and record the demo? And Anthony, how many songs do you have written for that demo?
3: So. I was thinking about this, um, and one, one quick note is like, we say there was a lot of bands then, but like in the conversation we've just had, there's like 50,000 bands, old school bands that just started. And like, there's more bands now playing that style of music than there were then, you know? But, um, so Tenure Fight kicks me out, and Damien and I, I don't know if you remember, we had, we were going to visit your brother, Chuck, in San Francisco. And that was going to be like our college break. Cause we're both in college. And so we were going out to San Francisco to go skate, whatever. And right before they kicked me out, uh, right before the trip, they kicked me out. And then we, the band wasn't like, there was no thought of it. It was just like, we know these people, this is who's going to be in it. And everyone we asked said yes. And then Damien and I get on a plane in December, like probably right after Christmas. And then we got back and, uh, I was like, fuck, I got to write songs, (laughs) you know? So this would have been 96, right? End of 96 going into 97. And then I think Neil had like a couple, Neil had a couple things. And then I just had stuff that I was kicking around and I formatted it. We started practicing in the basement of my apartment uh, on Hillside Street on Mission Hill without asking anyone. And it was definitely not a welcome thing like our landlord was trying to raise german shepherds in the basement so there would be like fucking <laughs> german shepherds running around which was rad um very assertive rave woman who hated us practicing and would come down and scream at us too so we had to get like a proper space but to answer your question um i think we we played our first show on march 7th i only remember that cuz that's my birthday so we had only been in a band for 2 months and then we recorded our demo in one iteration of salad days. It was like, it's like a fucking old dentist's office. It was so fucking weird, but it was, I, I don't know. It, we we recorded everything we had. And I wasn't there for some of it because I had to get, this is taking a heavy turn. I had to get a biopsy because I had like a very ill cancer scare. So I had to get this lymph node removed from my neck. The only reason I mentioned it is because I wasn't there when they did the vocals and I'm hoping Damien can color this in because someone fucking called me. I got out of the hospital and they're like, dude, Pete's vocals sound like choke. This is fucked up. And I'm like, what? Cause we had never, we'd played like one show and never really heard him in practice. And I'm like, what? Like in my head, I'm like, Oh, he's going to sound like fucking skip turning point or something. And there was like, a choke version of the demo, but I don't, I wasn't there for that. Man, then did I, that, he redo the de- the vocals then?
0: Yeah.
4: That's
3: cause he funny. was just, yeah, I think he was just trying to like do it. You know what I mean? Like, cause you go from not hearing yourself to hearing yourself and you probably sound so dry that you're like, and fucking recording dudes. I'm not throwing anyone under the bus, but they like, they lightweight love doing that shit. So you just hear yourself to fuck with you. It's like, mm-hmm. Very mean. I don't know why cats do that, but they love being like, oh fuck, can you hear yourself? And you're just like yelling like a fucking dumbass. Um, but yeah, it was Pete's first time in a studio. So he, you know, I think Brian really coached him to like dial it back. But I would have loved to hear the chokels. That would have been fucking sick, but oh uh, well.
2: Maybe that'll wow. be Rev 200 That in my eyes choke.
3: Are we uh, on Rev? Demo. I don't think I don't I've never noticed if we're on Revelation, they never really talk about us. <laughs> like, I, I remember in print.
4: <laughs> I remember that basement really it's well because it was—it it was like a, it was kind of like a dungeon. Like it was pretty raw, but I—I I remember us rehearsing a lot. Like I think we played, we rehearsed a lot. I mean, I don't—I—I I don't know if it's just like at that age when you're, you know, 19 and 20, you just you don't you have a lot of free time to to play. But I remember, I mean, that was always beneficial to me. Is just like rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing and just like getting the parts down, getting the parts down. Um, I think for the record and for the demo, um, from what I remember.
3: But yeah, it's like, we, we would rehearse like at first it would be like learn the song and it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like fucking coalesce where we had to like write down math on a chalkboard. You know what I mean? Like it was pretty simple, but then we would practice like you would learn how to play the songs with energy. Like we would actually do that in practice because it you don't want to be those cats who like, you have all this like show energy. And then like, it's all off time. Like you're fucking jumping in a fast, like it doesn't make sense. And it just sounds like a hot mess. Not like, right. We definitely had shows where we were like hot messes, but um we, we like, you would learn to like when you could kind of do your freak outs and when like you could let a chord ring and, we would practice with energy. You know, it's probably something I read some fucking a thousand Henry Rollins books are all the same book. I probably got that there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but it's, it's one of the tightest demos of all of that time period. And I think of all time, just, it came out of the box, just like the songs are together. It sounds pro It's fucking. i still. So I I don't want to jump ahead too far, but I want to know, did you write Anthony, did you write the lyrics too? Did, the band write the lyrics or was pete the one that wrote the lyrics just vocally i was curious about
3: for for the most part like i think courage to care pete wrote for sure i know neil wrote had some parts for lasting values because like i i had this like we would have we would all talk like we'd go out to eat we'd hang out we'd all talk about like we'd have like not band meetings but we were it was like a hive mind thing of like like one thing in the beginning was like don't wear old t-shirts on stage because we want to support newer bands that was like a rule and we weren't going to have x's on anything that was a rule and we wanted like the design to be modern and because like Damien has a design background I have a design background so we were like very to varying degrees of success but like we had all these we didn't have things we wanted to do it was like a checklist of what we weren't going to do Right. That's what, that's what I was kind of hinting at. I think even when I talked about with Ten Yard Fight
2: because I just felt like one of the things I loved about in my eyes and the lyrics and everything was there wasn't like a song that said straight edge. There wasn't a song that nothing was really. Everything was a lot more ambiguous, and I thought that was cool. Like it's that like, was we knew that, was that, intentional. that like. Yeah. And, yeah, and you could tell. Like we we knew that it was a straight edge band. You know, you open up the thing; it says Boston Straight Edge. The shirt said it, but like you didn't have a song like "Clear" by Floor Punch, which is a fucking great song. I love that song. Yeah, like, like why 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 uh, uh, would why why you need saturate to the
3: market? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean? Like we would joke about that. Like no, you drink, you stink. Songs like that wasn't gonna happen. And uh, the other thing too is like, like let's be real. Like not, I'm not trying to talk retroactively, but like, Damien's going to school for fine art, I'm going to school for fine art, we're into all this different stuff, we have all these different friends and influences, and um, to me, as like, I felt old being in that band, and I, I think the, when the band started, I was like 20, and I was like, oh, because in my head, I'm already older than a lot of my heroes when they were in their bands, right, right. So there has to be some progression, but there has to be progression within this box. So our our kind of way around that was like, well, let's not just use the topics that everyone used. Like, let's go, let's go a couple layers deeper. And also like, and maybe Damien can speak to it, but I think it, it wasn't like we were all reviewing things, but we all had to be proud of it. Like we couldn't do stuff that the, someone else in the band thought was corny. And to a fault sometimes because like i would comment on some shit. i don't want to throw anyone under the bus but like you know dude uh, i don't know if i don't know if that's gonna fly <laughs> you know what i mean like certain parts or just you know little i'm a critical person and like i was at that point in my life i was way too hypercritical and way too free with my mouth like i trip out on some of the things i didn't said back then so but, you know, it had to be, we had to be proud of it. And we couldn't have, like, you wouldn't show up even down to a flyer and be like, what the fuck is this? Like, Simpsons ripoff flyer. Like, who did this? You know, that would yeah. never happen.
4: I mean, I, I think I could definitely speak to that sort of high mind mentality. Like, it's funny, when I want to listen to In My Eyes, I usually listen to Nothing to Hide, and I, I, it's just kind of more my go-to. But um, listening to Difference Between, I was like, one of the things that struck me the most about it was like. This was a time when we were all like really on the same page, like we were we were really like a unit. And it was like we had those those philosophies of, of like, yeah, I remember like that. We're not going to wear old shirts. We're going to wear like other bands shirts that are playing now every weekend that we like weren't playing a show. We were driving to Jersey or, you know, to wetlands or CBS to see like other other bands play. Um, yeah, like that, just that kind of thing where you sort of all are in line are in line and in tune with each other. And it's not even really spoken about. It's just sort of just like, it's like your friend group and you're all just kind of like on the same level. Um, I and feel it's like something that, would, that
2: can only happen, I think, when you're young. Yeah. Like that would never happen, couldn't happen now with us in our 40s, I don't think. Like you're not going to, you know what I mean? Like find a group of people that are going to be that in tune with one
3: another, I don't think. I think you just described the Proud Boys, dude. yeah you definitely you definitely could find some people
1: (laughs) so you record the demo that demo is everywhere how did you get it out and this is pre you know obviously this is pre-internet so you're i'm assuming just mailing these out selling them at shows did you send those out to labels to try to get signed other than to rev
3: no we we just sold them and we, for everyone we sold, we gave away five. I would say that was a metric. And then we had a friend who, we always had like this weird connection to Southern California. And we had a lot of friends there. Cause like people would just, fucking people would just blow you up back in the day. Like you'd just be at home and it'd be like, Hey, I'm fucking Ricky Steadfast and I'm in town. And you're like, fuck, I guess I got to entertain Ricky Steadfast now. And like, but then Ricky Steadfast would like ask you for demos. And like, we had a friend who just bootlegged our demo, which is fine. He's a famous bootlegger. And, uh, but that's how like Southern California got our demo. Cause this dude went out there and sold our demo. um, And then we did a tour. No, go ahead, David Well,
4: Pete also just being around longer, I think a lot of people he was just a face that everybody knew. So I think he definitely there was some like intrigue and, you know, just the just all the amount of people he knew, people are like, whoa, he's finally like in a band, you know? so yeah, I think because
2: he of- you you guys were all like it's funny. I remember reading an interview, and Pete said he was like twenty eight or twenty nine. And at that point, that seemed ancient to me being like 16, you know? So like you guys were what a good, te- not 10 years younger, but probably at least five, six, seven, which at yeah. that age is a lot.
3: Pete's like six years older than me. So, Funny. and he had never like, he had just never been in a serious band. So I think that like everyone knew Pete. So it was like, we had that. It, it was like a couple things. It was like, Pete was a seamster, right? Like he's known, and known for his hospitality of, like, letting bands crash, driving people to shows, giving people records, like a very giving person, and a very supportive person. And, you know, I think there was some, like, scene karma, right? So there was the scene karma, and then the band was all, like, almost all expats, right? Like, Damien's from Philly, we have Luke and Neil from Connecticut, uh, I lived in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, but I didn't grow up in Boston. And then Pete grew up in Quincy. So like we had groups of people that cared about us from all over. And I think that was a benefit too, but we didn't send the demo to anyone. It was zero people. <laughs> and, you know, people would just ask for it. And it was like really nice. Like people were, people were hyped on us. Like people wanted to sign us. To smaller labels before we had a name like we didn't have a name until we played our first show you know like I, the 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 flyer for the first show just said like these people like some people's new band it didn't <laughs> even have a name and we decided on that name like we had all these i wrote them down like uh i think we were going to be called the good guys from that was damien's which i think is still was, a sick I, don't name. Think it was, I
4: don't know if it was me i thought it wasn't wasn't the good guys like, friends, <laughs> wasn't that going to be, or, or Courage to Care was going to be, wasn't that going to be Gorilla Biscuit's name or something? Yeah,
3: yeah, there was that. There was um, something, that's my screen name back in yeah. the day. Something to say, and then that was Statue's name, and then um, 100% was one I really liked, but then we got an argument because we didn't want people to write it out with numbers.
1: Because
3: yeah. <laughs> I don't even think better than a thousand, because then that would have been fucking like lightweight like weird too but um, <laughs> but yeah and then in my eyes was like in the car like we have to have a name and I I think I said it I don't fucking I don't care you know what I mean yeah, I, like, think we were like,
4: I think we were literally like standing like about to go on stage
3: <laughs> yeah, I, think yeah. We,
4: I remember us being in like a hallway or something
3: like, alright that's it, like, yeah. mm-hmm. it so, so we, we played um, a fuck ton though like we would we would do the dumbest shit like we would drive to fucking Hagerstown Maryland for one show
1: oh I was there
3: yeah <laughs> That so was intention. sick. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. With,
1: but with that was with um. Well, I saw I saw that show, but what I'm talking about was Redemption '87, Blade Crasher. In my eyes, I think Strong oh, Intention also. But
4: on the skate ramp, was there's, that?
1: that was Virginia Beach.
4: Okay, Virginia Beach.
1: Me. Yeah. But I remember you traveled far for the shows here locally to me. But you went on that tour with Redemption '87 not too long after the demo came out, right?
3: Yeah. And then I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I guess it doesn't matter. But then we were supposed to tour with Redemption 87 in California and we bought like plane tickets and it was like a very, this shit was not booked by a booking agent. You know what I mean? It was just Eric Ozzie just being super nice. And then like, you know, we had like four phone correspondence. He's like, Oh, Redemption broke up, but don't worry. This tour is going to be sick. We're like, what, fuck? who the fuck is it going to be with? You know, he's like, <laughs> I'm going to do a new band, but Nerve Agents wasn't together yet. So we did like a headlining potluck demo tour, like five nights in San Francisco. Like it was so fucking weird. And I'll tell you a quick story. Um, we had rented a, a minivan for that tour and we were like borrowing some equipment and we had, it was like a fucking hot mess. And we, we had burned out the brakes on the minivan and like the transmission Cause none of us knew how to drive like really long hills and like windy hills. Like we're going down, we flew into uh Seattle. And so the shit got fucked up and the, the van was just totally fucked within like three days. We were in Seattle and we were at some like, you know, whatever, like the, the, the veg restaurant in that town was that everyone went to after the show. And there was these like kind of like fish deadhead girls hanging out on a stoop. And the dude driving the van was like, fucking trying to impress them, and he like was like revving the engine. And then he went to floor it and like peel out and just drop the transmission. And so then we had to befriend these people. It was mad awkward, but they were super nice, and they were like, oh, like you know, they had like the sick dorm situation with like a tapestry on the wall, and they are like, oh, you guys want to fucking smoke? We're like, no, you're in a band and you don't smoke. It was like mad awkward. But they gave us a number and they like the rental company brought us another van. And then a year later we were on tour on the rev tour. And someone was like, yo, let's go see if those girls are still there. And, (laughs) and they fucking lived in the same spot. we're like, yo, what's up fucking Shirley and Karen. And like (laughs) kicked it with them for a little bit. Like, what are you doing? We're like, we're back on tour. And then they're kind of like fucking lightweight mad. Like, why don't you tell us you're back in town? But (laughs) It was just pretty fucking rad that they lived in the same spot and they were super friendly and, like, I don't know, all that weird shit that happens on tour that everyone, you know, says, like, uh, before the internet, this is what happened. And so, yeah, that's what happened before the yeah, internet.
4: I mean, those, those West Coast weekends were really cool, though, and I felt like we kind of came out as this, like, unit, you know? And it was, like, I don't know if a lot of other East Coast bands were going out, so we called call them these West Coast weekends where we'd, like, go out, and it was very much, like, you, you'd – you just have a lot of hospitality from like the local scene kids, and like we'd be jumping off bridges like in the in during the day, and then like you know playing a show at night. And um I don't know. I think I I feel like it was kind of cool even when we first came out. Like uh, everybody was like bugging out over our New Balance, like because we just like like I said before, we just kind of had this thing that was like you know you just sort of are dressing like your friends, and like I remember they were kind of tripping over our New Balance sneakers and stuff
3: yeah and all those like southern cause you gotta you gotta remember like how regionalized clothing was before like the aggregation of clothes that we're in now Where like you go to a mall now and like some fucking jackass who like follows a bunch of accounts like has their like fucking panda dumps on and like you know they're cool right and uh you know like their little fucking fit they put together but back then things were so regionalized and like we we're in like Southern California, the land of like long dicky shorts and pulled up socks.
4: And like fucking. visors. <laughs>
3: yeah. And, and cats were cats were like, why are you wearing those baby socks? Cause we were wearing like I would wear like ankle socks, you know, like the ones you couldn't see. And I'm like, well, my feet smell bad, but I want to wear socks, but I don't like look at you, you know, and like I would think that was like the wildest look to have like socks pulled up with shorts, you know what I mean? But it was like little things like that. Like we were even Real early on, like Pusshead said, was really helpful to us. And he was like trying to get us his tour in Japan, which he did get. Like he got us a record deal in Japan and a tour of Japan that we couldn't do ultimately. And he had a Warp magazine, which used to be like a surf, skate, snow magazine in the U.S. It was a fashion magazine in Japan, pretty much. And so we were in this fucking mag. He did the interview. Justine Dimitri took the photos. And when he showed me the shit, it was like the most psycho photos, like an eight page spread of a band that has a fucking demo. And then like we would get weird. Oh fuck, I just remember. I actually just talked to this dude. I'll get weird emails from Japan because I was like a very early adopter of the electronic mail format. And this dude, Manu, from Japan would ask me where to get New Balances. And then he came to fucking boston and stayed with us he he still has like an emo label in japan and he just wanted to go the new balance outlets and buy like pallets of fucking sneakers and shit like we only knew this dude through sneakers it was very weird but very cool you know (laughs) dude so i wanted to ask uh
2: you did the demo with brian Mm mm-hmm how did you guys, did you guys know Brian? I mean, I know this was in, in the time when he had just gone up to, uh, moved up
3: to Boston, right? He'd been there for like three, four years because Tenure and Fight did all the stuff with Brian. And then before, I actually, the first time I recorded with him, there was like this edge house where like Trey McCarthy lived there, Pete, Ben Chusid, Pete Riley from Mouthpiece. They had this house and Brian had like a primitive version of the studio there. and. LaCroix had a band called Trees Without Leaves, and they were doing a split seven inch. And like the dudes in their band just ghosted, and he was like, Could you help us record some songs? I'm like, Cool, like show them to me. He's like, Well, we don't have them. I was like, Oh, write them. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and that was like my first time in a studio was recording, and that was like 94. So, but yeah, we did we just had a relationship with Brian and and Brian was actually like a very good, like it was kind of like you weren't going to go with anyone but brian he was like very like encouraging and and just like oh you guys should do a demo i'll do it for 800 bucks come in this weekend so it wasn't much of a thought to do it with anyone else
1: and he's recording the tape back then also right
3: that was adats for sure okay and those are at rev somewhere yeah so will the demo ever get uh like a repress of on the vinyl I, or something. I talked to Rev a, a, about doing it. Cause there's like, there's an alternate version of the cover in blue. And I thought it'd be cool to do like no text, just the blue cover and do the demo. But there, you know, Rev was kind of like, what else do you have? It's like nothing. There's no, there's a, there's a cover of gangrene's alcohol with no ver- vocals. That's mm-hmm. the only, and there's some garbo on the end of the difference between reels. Like, we tried to record some medley of like fucking nine hundred two and zero theme song into like "Gray Cells Green" by Nezatomic Dust. It's Whoa! So ha- God, it so, that would have happened. <laughs> it's so fucking haggard. But it, it's like that shit you do when you're straight edge drunk and you're done the record. I, I think it's good for like after you did this thing that was super stressful to like fuck around. And we were like really excited we can talk about fucking around later but anyways yeah
4: we yeah. did a radio thing though did we ever get any yeah does anyone have that anywhere
3: i have all that shit but like who on earth you know what i mean like if you're gonna put something on vinyl especially in this economy like <laughs> i mean yeah. i hate i was about to say i don't like live sets but i just bought that leeway live lp but i'm not the hugest like live setman for hardcore it has radio kind of special the- Was that the one that was on the CD version of the demo, right? Dude, there's so many radio shit. Like, for some fucking reason, people love making us play on the radio. It's like the worst experience ever. (laughs) Yeah. Like, remember, Damien, we played on BCN, which is like the biggest rock station in fucking Boston. It like goes to like Rhode Island, you know?
4: Yeah,
1: that's nuts. So, who's the contact at Rev when you're talking to them and I mean, who's the A and R rep at the time, and were you psyched on signing with Rev?
3: I can say the dude's name was John Nutcher. Okay. So he he was like Jordan's. I think he was like friends with Slipknot. Um, I remember a lot about this, but Damien, I'm curious what you remember about that because there's some like funny stuff I definitely remember.
4: <laughs> you know, I, I, my memory's not as good, but like I just I just remember at the time that. Rev wasn't even thought of as an option. Like, I don't even know who they put out. Like, we didn't even think, I guess, you know, Equal Vision would have seemed like Equal Vision was putting out a lot of bands. I don't even know if New Age was really putting anybody out. Um, like, who put out like the Ignite records and stuff back then? But...
2: Conversion. We were- Conversion. Yeah, no, that was kind of done. And exactly. uh, Victory, there was Victory, which you guys got
3: offered Victory too, didn't you? Yeah, that was... So Rev had, we basically just talked to Jordan and and Jordan was like, let's just put the seven inch, let's put the demo out as a seven inch. And we're telling him like, you don't understand, dude. Cause like, cause I was the one who would go to the tape reproduction place. And at that point, like when he said that, I think we were on like fucking 1200 demo. It was like a sarcotic amount. Granted most, a lot of them, maybe half were given away, right? But I'm like, nah, man, like, I think that's a bad look because in my head we already sold so many like that was dumb like let's do something new and but he was like what just fucking get a layout together and put it out which in retrospect we probably should have done that but um but then the uh victory at the time one of the a people was uh john regan and john regan used to do shows way back in the day uh he had this Company called Top Secret Productions that did like all the shows in Boston, all the best shows, right? Summer, year after year, summer after summer. And then he went and like started to do hip hop and dance. And then he came back to hardcore and he showed up because I guess there was like a little bit of buzz. And then he showed up, he called us and he knew he grew up with Pete. And he was like, Oh, victory will offer you something fucking way better than Rev. And then the sales pitch, like he showed up at his, our apartment. So he didn't even really like take us out for a bullshit dinner. So right there was like pretty medium pimping, you know, it was definitely mid and uh, he's like, yeah. And he, you know, he had like a packet and he was like, you can do cool promotional stuff. And he showed us like, Hey man, don't, don't come at me for this one, but by the grace of God made fucking wooden nickels. That was their <laughs> promo item. <laughs> Highly, Uncool if you ask me in this current world, but whatevs. He's like, Yeah, you can do fucking combs or markers. And I'm just like, Okay. And so, (laughs) and it was, there was like all this weird money in there. Like, Yeah. And then you get like $8,500 just for equipment and da 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 da. And so you kind of leave and like, this is nothing against John. He was doing his job and he, you know, he had this sales pitch. And we're kind of, you know, for minutes, like, fuck, man. Well, seeing that bulldog with like dollars in his mouth, you know, like (laughs) the the fucking like that shit could kind of help when you don't have any, you know what I mean? Like it was like, Whoa, we could probably buy shit. And then we're like, we're not a fucking real band. We don't need a van. Fuck. You know what I mean? But then when you looked at the contract, they weren't, you know, obviously like I had a cursory understanding of the music industry, but what they wanted to do, any money you're getting, they're buying your publishing as like a roulette wheel situation where, if for some fucking reason one of these songs ended up in like a movie or commercial, they get all the loot. Plus they get all the performance royalties. They don't owe you mechanical royalties. They just own your publishing. And when I, I was talking to Pusshead about the contract, he's like, fuck that. Like these dudes are fucking crazy. Um, Start your own publishing. And like, he explained the publishing thing to me really well. Um, And which was a really cool crash course to learn and understand that. And, uh, and I don't think we were seriously going to do that anyways, but it was like a very big contrast where like, I'm not afraid to say it, it kind of, at a certain point, like I was going back and forth with Jordan. I was like, oh, this is feeling a lot more like a fucking favor, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, it was like, can we get a little more loot? Cause we we're trying to buy new drums for Luke. And it was like, no, eh, that's the offer. And we we're just like, fuck it. Star bulldog star, like it ain't that hard, you know?
4: Yeah, I mean, in my mind it was like between what what logo do you want to have on the back of your shirt? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. But I mean, I also felt like it was kind of a big deal for us to sign to Rev because nobody had really signed. Like Rev hadn't really put out anybody like us in a while. Uh, so it felt pretty, it felt, uh, it felt kind of special too.
2: It was very, I'll tell you, as someone who was a fa- as a fan, it was a very exciting thing because now we did the um, uh, two releases ago was the the battery record, but they all kind of came out around the same time. It was like the, you, you guys, when it it was reported that you guys got signed, the battery record wasn't out. Um, You know, nerve agents weren't a thing, fast break, all that. So yeah, it was a huge deal. It was like, yo, Rev's putting out like a straight up, fast hardcore band again
3: yeah it could have came out a lot earlier too but we waited so long for the cover which is like i think a lot of people had that story um but that was like we had the record done for months and months and we were just waiting for the cover and waiting and waiting uh we can we can go back to that if you like or talk about it now because that was kind of like a fucking wild one
2: yeah (laughs) do it yeah, well, I mean, the cover, I mean, and even we asked in our Discord, our uh, P- Patreon Discord, like, questions for In My Eyes, and
3: the first thing that comes up is the pushead, you know, the cover. Well, I mean, we were doing something counterintuitive because Pusshead, like, he started writing me letters, and we would talk on the phone way back with Ten Yard Fight, because I think that was, like, when he was starting Bacteria Sour, and he was getting back into, like, independent music again you know and he was really like he wanted us to do the record on our own he's like i'll show you how to do a record label and you could do make this fucking beautiful thing and it's like his idea was to have this illustration of the face and have a die cut cover where just the eyes were showing with no text on it like all this fucking wild shit and we were just so daunted by like nah dude we just want to be on rev you know what i mean like that's like like why do I want to play in like the backyard wrestling shit when I'm in the WWE? You know what I mean? Like,
4: let me jump in for a minute too. Yeah. This was like the days of early days of Photoshop where like our friends were making records that like when they sent them off the press, like you didn't know if the shit was <laughs> going to line up right, or if the blue was going to be the right blue or the green, you know what I mean? Like some of the stuff Rama was doing, <laughs> or if you look at like half of the Gurn Blanston records at that time, like they look like dog shit. So like, We did not know, like, it was very rudimentary, like, Photoshop, like, time. So, like, like Anthony's saying, like, we wouldn't have, like, how would we have done all that,
3: you know? Yeah, and how would we, like, know about distribute, like, it was just way too daunting. Um, And so, fucking, we, but the, uh, back to the counterintuitive thing, we're like, all right, fucking no X's, no skulls, because he was like, oh, I want to put an X in the pupil, in my eyes. And I was like, Oh my God, fucking bum out, you know, like not to disrespect Puss is one of the greatest, like punk artists, skate artists to ever do it. But like that level of like being literal, just bummed me out. And so I was like, no, man, like, think about like stuff he done for rocket from the crypt or the prong, like prong Beg to differ was like, that was like the zone. And then we're waiting, waiting, nothing waiting and uh and we don't know what the cover is going to be we just sent some damien and luke sent like polaroids Dude, I remember. still was, have
4: yeah no so he was like so it just came down to like well i want to draw like somebody's eyes and i remember being in the hallway we we're like a 38 calumet and luke just like took polaroids of each other's like faces you know and and then and and I think at one point he had even sent like maybe a skateboarding graphic, like a skull and a hoodie's doing you know, a grind or something. And that didn't feel quite right.
3: That was and, the second one. That, we declined the artwork on the second one. Oh, okay. That was a fucking rough one. So, I figured we'll talk, well, yeah, I want to- Yeah, I'll, I'll save it. We'll save that. Save that,
2: but, cause I, I do see this is and nowadays the turnaround time would have been fine. But back then after recording, you could usually get something out within like two or three months. Mm-hmm. And this says it was recorded November 97.
3: And if I recall, yeah. <laughs> it came out in the summer of 98. of 98. Yeah. 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 Cause so, so what happened was like, and I think in tandem, Hans tied was waiting for artwork too, that like supposedly later that artwork is the fucking St. Anger artwork
0: Whoa. supposedly yes. like,
3: which I yeah. totally fucking believe. Cause they, he would be like, oh man, I was, I was stippling your artwork and I spilled ink and I gotta start over. And I was like, oh, that's your version of the dog ate your homework, Mr. Head.
0: <laughs> like so,
3: but uh, and then at some point I had to like I often had to be the fucking asshole, which was fine. I was an asshole then, so it wasn't a big deal. And I was like, yo man, like I leave them this like ultimatum message, like we got fucking placements, like we got end cards, like dropping all this like music industry jargon that I we got to fucking, this has to fit the release schedule. Da da, da 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 We're going on tour. And he faxes the artwork to Rev and I get a call at work. I worked at this book publishing company and my boss was like this rad rocker dude from Syracuse. He recorded some of the early, like Syracuse, he recorded like Juvenocracy, a bunch of bands on the um, Voice of the Voiceless company. He was like a metal dude. And he's like, bro, you got a phone call from some dude, Richard. And I thought it was some fucking, one of my friends calling like, oh, it's Richard Head, ha ha ha, right? And so I get on the phone, I'm like, hello, Richard. And it's Richie Birkenhead. I and I didn't know he was doing design at Rev at the time. He's like, Anthony, um, Anthony, we have a problem with the artwork. The artwork's unacceptable. I'm thinking something more like break down the walls would be you know, very direct, very bold, live photo, simple text. And I go, what's wrong with the covered, Richard? And he's like, it's very weird. And I'm just like, fucking hold up, fucking two snowflakes. Like, what the fuck are you telling me this shit is weird for? And I got fucking kind of, not. What do you call that? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) For real, dude. But, and then I'm like, I was so pissed because this, you know, in my head I'd worked so hard. Like we had all worked so hard on this thing and you're so emotional and you're fucking young man you know and i'm like kind of got a little i don't want to say loud because i don't want richie to get mad at me to this day that dude will fuck me up but like i kind of was assertive i was like nah man that's the cover g and he's like well let me fax it to you and then the facts came in i was like all right fuck i might have to eat crow on this one and i'm like Nah, man it's gonna be cool like because it was just the illustration and uh yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just I fucking rode for it. Like whatever, we paid for it, so that was the cover. So I mean, it, was pretty,
4: it was pretty crazy to see it just as like a straight up like just a drawing of my of of the Polaroid of my face. Like it was like damn, like
1: yeah, okay. that was my question. That's you, right, Damon? Because I've always thought I I was always yeah, told that.
4: Which way do I got to go here? <laughs> <laughs> if I could throw acid on my face.
1: Because anyone... <laughs> it kind of looks like he took those Polaroids and then maybe took. Because Anthony sent me the Polaroids, it looks like maybe he took little pieces of everybody's face and maybe formed them into one. But I don't know. I, to, yeah. to me, see, but I, yeah, that's yeah. one of my favorite pusshead pieces. And it's because it's so different from anything else that he's done. And when I saw that, I mean, first of all, it's a fucking straight edge hardcore band on revelation records. That's like of our time. And then you have that fucking cover that Pusshead did. And you're in the band, you know, he's doing the artwork. I had no idea. I just got the promo at my local record store. I was fucking pumped. And, And the design work looks like you can tell someone that knows design did the layout for the record other than you know the Pusshead cover. It's well, the it looks I would have been slick. so
2: bummed if this had a cover like Break Down the Walls.
1: Yeah, and, and, and yes.
2: Break Down the Walls, iconic cover. It's a it's a like especially yeah. the, the original the Wishing Well design, even the even the first Rev design that Dave Bett did, not the black and white one, but um I loved that this didn't look like a typical youth crew cover. I remember hearing that Pusshead was doing the artwork had no idea that it was gonna look like it did.
4: Yeah, I mean, none of us really did.
3: Yeah.
4: And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's pretty great about it. But somebody, uh, what you were saying too, as far as Potshead artwork goes too, somebody told me like he, like it's very rare for him to draw like a portrait. It just, this might be one of the closest things to like a portrait that he ever did. Um, yeah. Which I think is cool too.
1: Do you ever see, there's a black and white version of it that came out with one of his- hyper-stoic hyper-stoic, books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I tried to yeah. find
3: it. There was like, he did some shirts for like a conference in Japan with like the blue artwork on it with embroidery on the front. And we were like, I guess the thing with that was like to play. Cause, cause you know, once you get the artwork, you're like, how does this translate to a shirt? And it wouldn't really translate. So that's why we did the eyes kind of obscured. Um, and that was a lot of that was the idea of like, we had a designer that we worked with for a lot of it. This, uh, uh, designer, Tony Leone, that I went to school with, he used to play in a Connecticut band called Power Surge that played at the Anthrax quite a bit. And he was really, he did, he also did very awesome design forward magazine called Commodity, um, super well-designed zine. And he just, he was rad. He just had cool ideas and he got, he really understood what we were trying to do, you know? And, and so like everything was just, Remember your youth, do that 2.0. Like, don't you have all these tools because now Photoshop was more accessible and Illustrator. And so it was like, use those tools to do something rad. And and what I like about all the artwork is there's always some hand incorporated element, whether it's the splatters or whatever. And like, you know, this is also before like fucking pink splatter OD screamatron shit was like very common, you know. So it wasn't like Now I look at the shit, and it's like kind of Walking Dead bum out. But you know, like at the time, it was very, especially for like the type of band we were. I thought it was cool.
1: But you never got the original artwork or anything, did you? Do you have have that or no? I have it. Yeah, yeah. Dude, that is awesome. But um.
3: But I mean, I'm not. What am I gonna? I couldn't like that. I would be scared. That's gonna like come off the frame at night. Like hide things in my house. (laughs) Not really my aesthetic. (laughs) <laughs> so, but Pusshead did put out
1: in my songs on the Bacteria Sour comps, right?
3: Yeah, yes. he was Sour that we re-recorded that song.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> what song was it that was on the comp? Purge to Care, I think. The, I think there no, were I,
1: think
4: values? I don't know. Was it There like, were
1: two versions. It? There were two versions and one of them has got um, there's two versions of the Bacteria Sour comps and the first one had
3: a, a different built on song trust, yes built on built trust, on trust. And, yeah
1: and then the second one had a, um was it lasting values but the demo version it says demo version next to the song maybe title. yeah
3: yeah i just remember like he thought built on because that was actually really crazy like i would have these like two hour long conversations with him and he was like built on trust this is your best song like this is like fucking the new seven seconds like write 20 more songs like that and i'm like I'm already done with that. you know. Like, I was going to say, you didn't even re-record <laughs> it for the, because I was going to say there's two
2: tracks on the demo that didn't get redone on this. And that's one of yeah. them. And the other is, uh, I was looking at it. I used to have a copy of the tape. I don't anymore. Um,
3: out, out of my hands. Yeah, I think Built on Trust, we didn't re-record it because of that, like to keep the like exclusivity. But then later we put it on a CD and he was heated about that for sure.
1: I was wrong. It's actions fall short. That's what was oh, okay. recorded, and it was a bacteria sour, volume two, second version,
3: mm-hmm.
1: straight from Discogs. So mm-hmm. that's I'm that's where I'm coming with that information.
3: Sick. <laughs> Discogs doesn't so, lie.
1: So, yeah, take that, mm-hmm. take that as you will. But so we rushed, so we kind of rushed over recording the record. So what do you remember from recording the record? I guess I'll go for Damien. What do you remember from recording the LP for getting these songs together? I, you know,
4: I, I don't remember a whole lot. I mean, like I said, I think we probably were super rehearsed. Um, I can't remember if it was this record or if it was when I was recording Flash with Brian. But I do remember Brian sitting down and being like, "What's your bass sound?" And I was like, "I don't know. Like, I don't have one." And it was this long, drawn out thing. I was like, it was like everybody has a bass sound. Like, you know, like <laughs> like so and so from Cavin, or you know." And, and I was just like well like i just remember we had this long conversation over table and i was kind of like looking back i'm like well why didn't he like help me get a bass sound? you know like dude like help me find the one that i like you know so (laughs) the bass
2: i think the bass sounds sounds good to me like that's like that was one of the things i was in my notes i was gonna point out it sounds good
4: actually it's a little clicky it's a little trebly but um but i don't know i mean i probably you know like uh just, you know, I, I gotta say, listening to the drums, like Luke killed it, like the drums sound awesome. Yeah, they and do. It's just like, you know, when, when Luke lays the foundation like that, um, you know, I just, I just, I remember probably that going pretty pretty quickly. I mean, I think we, we recorded pretty quickly then. Like I said, we probably, um, were pretty pretty well rehearsed and just kind of went in and banked it out. But Anthony's probably
2: so. At at this point, were Luke and Neil both also in fast break? Yeah, yeah. Was that was that a a pain in the ass having yes in, in two <laughs> bands? Because <laughs> I, I answer I, yeah. I hated being in bands where there were people in other bands.
3: Frankly, like it's just annoying. It shouldn't have mattered. Like, but it it was just one of those things where like you it was. uh like everything felt like ice fishing. Like if you ever went ice fishing, you basically just, you set up your fucking station, you put a hole in the ground, then you drop the line. You just sit there and freeze and wait for gold. Right. You don't do anything. Ice fishing is just a game of waiting. And like the answering machine was like ice fishing. Like you have an answering machine and your numbers on this demo. And then you come home and it's like, Hey, um, you don't know me, but I fucking book shows at this college in Ohio and, we're doing a show with Ignite or something. You're like, yes, you know, like we caught something. And you get up, like you just come home to all these messages. And then so then you'd be stoked. You're like, all right, we're playing fucking CBs. It's fucking the sick matinee. We're playing with whomever. And then you're like, then you gotta make the next call. And then like, oh no, we're playing uh fast breaks playing at fucking the pizza cove and with 25 to life 12 times and come correct and you're like fuck we gotta cancel. Well we you know like that shit would be like low key annoying but I mean it was fine to be honest we all should have done more bands and just shared like been cool with sharing members but also you, you gotta remember there's at that time like without the level of Pro Core and all this like fest core and all these different tiers everything was so small and insular that everything felt so um Competitive within each other, and and it's like a lot of young people who you know being in a band. A lot of people can say they get into a band to save the world and spread a message, but it is very ego driven because ultimately you have to go do a thing, and then people react to it. It's almost like stand up comedy. Like if you ever bombed at stand up comedy, it's the same as fucking bombing playing a show, and people are just like this. Sucks. Absolutely, it like when people are like, soul. "I'm
2: playing for myself," and it's like yeah but especially with this style of music like if you play a show and people aren't reacting you can only do so much and like you know the, the, you want more people at your shows you want people reacting uh and going off so
3: yeah it's i always not found fucking... it funny
2: when people are like yeah i'm just doing this for me it's like well yeah but yes. you're also doing it to get people to flip off it, yeah it's a
3: reciprocal like energy thing it's not like fucking john zorn or Mersbau or something you know like you need if people aren't reciprocating it's not gonna work you know so i think at that time like there's a lot of egos and a lot of pride and a lot of like just really silly things that get in the way for some reason there wasn't that uh Symbiotic relationship between all the bands that maybe let a lot of other scenes flourish like prior, like in Boston, there was just so many segments and then all those segments did great things like, you know, I was just reading like some article about like how Boston changed music or whatever the fuck you know and like, but you know, Converge opened up a very unique lane, Caven opened up a lane, Piebald opened up a lane, We're we're not in that conversation because people don't understand that like there was never a youth crew, whatever the fuck styled band from Boston that was like nationally known before 10 Yard fight. That's real. Yeah, I'll wait, I'll wait all day. You can tell me which one. Right. And I think all those bands of that time, what we did, I don't think it was revolutionary. I don't think we were pushing the boundaries of music. I don't think we were fucking uh, creating new anything. We were keeping a seat warm for the for everything to come back like you don't have all those reunions unless we're out there covering those songs talking about those bands speaking with reverence about them keeping people interested it's kind of like a. it's kind of like you know in the 80s and shit in the 70s when like star wars like a big movie would hit and then there'd be all these like shitty versions of star wars like space fight or whatever you know like you need all the space fights for star wars 2 to come back and knock it out at the at the the box office. And so I think like our contribution was just showing that like you could do this very linear straightforward thing and do it really fucking hard and and push it as hard as you can and tour as much as you can and put out good quality things and then it kind of fostered it created an environment where there was just interest in that style of music. And I think if anything, like that's the contribution, you know, even though yeah. that wasn't the question. And I just, want No, to- no. Cause you're, you're
2: absolutely right though, because I, we've explained before, like this era, like you couldn't see Gorilla Biscuits. You couldn't totally. see Youth of Today. You couldn't see Bold. You know, now we take it for granted. These bands play every festival and they're playing, you know, every weekend, like, it wasn't like that. We we had in my eyes, we had floor punch, we had 10 yard fight, and then we'd have, you know, floor punch cover judge. And that's how we got to
3: right.
2: see judge and go off the judge. And then, yeah, that got people interested so that when the time came, you know, those bands didn't get forgotten. And I do uh-huh. think a lot of it has to do with this that revival period of like 96 to 99 or whatever
4: Dude, i mean I, I actually think that it was a super important time and i think that if it wasn't for that and us and those other bands at that time like it, it we helped keep hardcore alive in a sense and we, we if it wasn't for that time period everything that we have go, everything that's going on now i don't think would be uh, uh as big or as successful i mean you know, it's like you said, like it's funny when you're getting into hardcore at that age of like you know, whatever 92, 93, 94, 95, 90, you know, 95 to 98. Like, you had to do all this homework about the old bands, you couldn't get the <laughs> records easily, you couldn't hear them that easily. But it seemed very important to know, you know, the old records. And I remember using, I remember thinking, like, damn, like, why can't Gorilla Biscuits play a show? Like, everybody loves Gorilla Biscuits, like, why won't they, why can't they be a band? Like, you know, like like they would do so well, you know? <laughs> and it's like, and I, I think thinking about the youth crew revival, it's it's a term, but it's, it's silly to think that like 10 years after 98, if they're in 2008, if somebody did a youth crew revival revival, it sounds ridiculous. Or even right <laughs> now for somebody to do something 10 years earlier, it, you know, that music, like indie music is sort of whatever, I mean, sort of flatlined in some respects but it really was like it sort of helped it was sort of something in the water in different places it brought an excitement back to the music uh it brought a scene of kids from all over back into it i mean bridge nine like started in that time kids moved literally moved to boston to start bands i mean american nightmare was started with kids that moved to boston
2: too. right well think like, about like have just, heart
4: just have because heart. there was a scene there you know it was like yeah. So it it is crazy to think about. I still think the like the real story of Boston in the late '90s and early 2000s like has never really been told because there's like crazy there's crazy stories there's crazy characters but from everywhere from like you have your Converges you have your Pieballs, you have like your Trouble and Unseen and like Dropkicks like all of those bands um you know suddenly like they grew at such a, such a, such a huge, I mean, Hydrahead records. When I, the first, one of the first people I met in Boston was Aaron from Hydrahead in ISIS. He gave me like the, the vent seven inch she had just put out. And it would, it was all at such a low minimal level and it all exploded. So, so fast, you know, so it was, it was definitely a special time.
3: To, sure. to go back to the remembering the record. I remember we had way too long to do it like seven days or something i was like whoa really and i remember like so to damien's point when brian was like all the shit i brought him i'm like okay these are records i think it should sound like i like this of start today i like this of um screaming for change i like the turning point lp I like Dag Nasty, Wig Out at Danko's. And he had a critique for all of those. Like, oh, so you don't want to be able to hear the drums? Oh, so you don't want there to be a hi-hat? And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, this is just what I like. And then also, I was reading uh, Tape Op magazine a lot. And I like, I thought I was so fucking slick. Like, I'm going to roll in there. Like, I know all this shit. I'm like, so we're going to do this one mosh part. And we're going to fucking tape a refrigerator box to the kick drum and get this really boomy sound. And like, I could just see Brian being like, we're not, what the fuck are you talking, I was like, because I I was obsessed with, uh, fuck, one of the Dinosaur Junior records, the one after Green Mind, I believe, where with you that been? snare sound. And I was like, where he you been? And I was listening to Murph talk about, oh, I just had this shitty snare head, and I put pieces of tape in these places, and then a photo. And I'm like, Luke's going to put tape, I want this crack of the snare. And he was just like, yeah that's cute, this is what we're gonna do. And then we're doing it to a click track because I think he was getting more formidable with Pro Tools. So if you listen, I A-beat it recently, every song that we re-recorded for the LP is like five or six seconds longer because they're too, like, it's too tight because we did it to a click. I think hardcore should breathe. Like, I don't care if the fucking metronome is off at the end of the song like who gives a shit because like if you really if you're approaching it from a quantized musical level the actual beat of hardcore like the fast beat that everything's predicated on is kind of an imperfect beat it's like a like a half measure off right it's not actually in time you couldn't really program a drum machine to play that beat because it kind of skips and everyone puts their little uh english on it right like some people don't count four on the hi-hat so like chain of strength is it's faster because you're waving the wands and going super fast and then other people you know like uh minor threat is like a relatively it, that's a different fast beat burn is a is a fast beat that's kind of slow and groovy even though it's you're playing the same beat so to me like Brian did the right thing in that the record like lines up and it's quantized or, you know, whatever the terminology would be. And we could go back in and that would be easier. But I think it slowed things down and it got like a little, I don't know, my memories of recording it was like taking it super seriously. And Brian being really involved with um, adding just very subtle things like you should have a tail that goes like this or I think it's the first song, like the way it was left, like he heard like different lines of like, Oh, do a counter melody here. And like that kind of stuff was cool. But then I think on the second half of the record, it gets a little too fucking, there's a little too many uh, toppings on the, on the fucking Froyo. You know what I mean? Like it gets a little too cute at times, but whatever.
2: What do you mean? Like, 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 I'm trying to think of the second half of the record,
3: like octave. Stuff. It's less octave stuff. It's just kind of like picking techniques or like song structures. Like this drops out. Like and to 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 my point, like you not remembering means like the second half is a little lagatron. Like I would have started, like I was thinking the last song should have been the first side song on the the first the second side. Conversation drifts should have started the second side because it's like such a ripper, but whatever. Who did it's, the it's, sequencing? Did you guys? Uh, how did you come up with that? I yeah, I think it was just I don't know. There there were certain things where it was like, oh, that's like that's going to start the record off or whatever. Like I don't need, you know.
4: Well, conversation drifts. The last line is the end, so I think that was we yeah, like, yeah. That's why wow. it was the end.
3: That's right. That's right. That's right. I know that I know the way it was left. The cost and advice taken. We were playing those in a row. Like, cause after a while we, we kind of knew we had to play more than one song in a row. Like we were learning, (laughs) you know, we would just see bands that were put together and we're like, Oh fuck. Sick of it all. They don't stop as much. And like, then the singer doesn't have to come up with some bullshit to say, (laughs) but but it would be hard for us because so many people would knock us out of tune. Like, uh, like, I remember we played, I don't, it was a show in Boston. I don't remember where. And I remember coming off, stage and feeling so cocksure and just fuck we arrived we did it and al Quint saying that was cool next time tune your guitars and i was like yeah fucking your zine's cool next time get a proofreader you know what i mean like fuck you man you know like it was just so like dejecting and like he's probably right for like i didn't know we were fucking helmet my man like i you know what i mean like whatever but i would take feedback like that seriously and, and be like okay fine I'm going to figure out a way without a fucking Floyd Rose tremolo to stay in tune and go and play with a lot of energy and fuck you, you know? And like, it, it's, I don't know. It's like, you flip that shit. You try to, you try to take all the feedback and be like, you know what? Ultimately everyone is giving you feedback because they're invested somehow, even if they're just invested in being a dick and that's, that's fine, you know? Um, But yeah, I don't know. Like just, I remember working, super hard there's just all these little like nuances of things or like just brian was good at letting us do some stupid shit you know like i need to yell we need a different voice to yell this part and it ultimately doesn't sound any different but he would humor you and be like all right anthony go yell that part you know just and then letting us record that ridiculous like bonus track you know like he was he gave us a lot of leeway to have fun and and make the record we wanted You know, but I mean, to me, it would have had more reverb. It would have been less dry. Like it would have, because all those things weren't cool at the time, but I would have been cool with them. (laughs) Yeah. I I think it sounds, yeah, it, it, it sounds good. And
2: like, I love Brian's production, like, especially on the, you know, like when my bands would record, we would bring his stuff and say like, we want it to sound like this. Mainly the putting Jason on the spot, the second count me out LP, we'd be like, we just want to sound like, you know, we want to sound like this. But I will say that Jason and I have gotten in arguments over this. Like when I listen to In My Eyes, it's always the second album. Um, That's, that's the one I reach for maybe every, you know, after five times of reaching for that, I would maybe put on the first one. I just like the way the second one sounds better. I like the the recording better, the performance. I just like it better.
1: We got to save this conversation for the second LP talk when we get to. Yeah, yeah. it's too teaser, much to get into.
3: Teaser on the second one, I think I had enough I had enough confidence to be like to not take no for an answer on certain things and kind of being like I guess as you get older, you get a little more hardened and you, and you start to understand things. And for the second one, I was like, well, we're fucking paying for this, dude. You know what I mean? Like on the first one, it's just a a manic ride. You're just like, ah, cool. Like I'm making this thing and there's going to be a rev star on it. How cool. And Brian knows more than me sick. And on the second one, I'm like, well, this is an exchange of money and this is goods and services. And I want this service to reflect, whatever fucking like I, I if this thing sucks it's on me I'll put my name on it like I want to co I want to really you know so like there's shit on there like and whatever we'll talk about it in like nine months or whatever but uh like there's not three full guitar tracks everyone did the three full guitar tracks and to me all it did was make the mixing more annoying because you just have this loud shit it's not doing it's not fucking sleep you know, it's not dope smoker. It's not doing anything. It's just a bunch of loud. And so, all any like leads or extra guitars that was all just punch in and just fucking let it run up the middle. And so, there was less, make it sound more live or something, you know? But it's just all like a learning process. Like, I don't have too many memories from making that record because it just went by so quickly. And I was, I was trying to like, learn how to make a record while making a record yeah. right i think we all yeah. and we'll
2: we'll, we'll d- definitely dig into the the second one but i was just saying like as far as i don't know anything about recording like click track like click i know what a click track is but i mean like i've never so like to me like you're gonna hear it differently than we hear it, right because sure you guys played the songs to also me also,
3: too, like Luke would have a totally different take because I'm sure that's one of the first times Luke recorded to a click track and he fucking killed it. So I'm sure going forward, that helped him so much because when he's doing music that's you know, like at a slower pace where like having it in time is so important, like he already had that skill set, right. You know, so like his experience, like everyone's experience is going to be totally different and like colored by what they got out of it you know
4: yeah and I I think I think about that then too that we were like you're so young you're so out of your element you're sort of like oh yeah like that sounds good you feel you feel like stoked just to be in a studio but I also feel like there was sort of this air then of even you know I, I, I was roommates with Rama who was you know was was trying to do a label and grow his label and like and Brian, it's like, I, I feel like everybody, there were certain people, there was an air of like people trying to like a, a, attain like a, a bigger position than they were in somewhat like sort of being like, yeah, click track, the pro way to go. Like we got to do the click track, you know what I mean? And like, and Ram was like, we're going to put, like, Yeah, like we're going to do a, what were those? What were the CDs that were not in the plastic? The uh...
3: oh digipack. Oh digipack, he was, he yeah. He was so enamored with digipacks, dude. <laughs> I
4: was like the, these little things that I think, you know. But also, I think in in Brian's defense too, with some of those um, recordings of that era, another thing about that time of 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 the if we're going to call it the Youth Crew revival, we were still tr- we weren't at that stage where bands were like which is I think what came after in my eyes is a certain period of hardcore that kind of where I started to lose interest, where people were like, we like the Outburst 7-inch. So let's record a record that sounds exactly like the Outburst 7-inch and the artwork's gonna look exactly like the Outburst 7-inch and we're gonna dress like Outburst, you know? And it's like, it just became too, it became like, you know, hardcore cosplay. And I think even even though we were like referencing a sound, um, And maybe an image like we were, we were still trying to do something new, you know? And I think that the recordings of the period are at least like they were trying to be in the era that they were made in, you know? Yeah.
3: Yeah. They're trying to sound, I think that's exactly it. They're trying to sound modern and maybe if it was like reverb and doubled vocals, it would have sounded, it could have sounded great. It could have sounded corny. So, you know, and, and also just, you know, Brian was, he's shaping his vision and how he does something. And that's really important for him too. Cause it's not just, he's not like a Steve Albini where like you go to Steve Albini, you know what you're going to get. He doesn't really give a fuck if he doesn't like you. And he just says, there's a record button. You have the boomy drums Do your fuck plink away, my man. You know? So I think like we were all learning.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got, well, I was thinking too, like, cause we we've, we've talked to Brian he was young. He was totally. like 20 yeah. or 21 years old or something probably when he recorded this. And yeah, like you said, the, this doesn't sound the same as Nothing to Hide, which doesn't sound the same as, you know, the Bane records he did or whatever. Like you yeah, it's not like a Steve Albini thing where you hear Surfer Rosa and you know, oh yeah, this is that drum sound or whatever. And I, I think that's, that's cool because it does kind of, Uh, you know, the way it it is with Brian is he works with the artist. um, And...
4: uh, Just to be able to have somebody that understood hardcore, you know, or where you were coming from, you know, instead of, like, some long-haired rocker dude that's, like, you know, doesn't even get what you're trying to do.
3: Yeah, we were very lucky that there was more people that understood hardcore that that we had options, you know what I mean? Like, a couple years prior, it's, like good luck like you might be in some dude's basement whose favorite band is a fucking steely dan and that's what you're gonna get you know what i mean
2: Man. yeah for sure like you i mean you hear this stuff about like when they did uh what is it like the the bold you know the bold lp at that electric reels and it's like with people that had no idea
3: what hardcore yeah. business or are. everyone going to chung king because they did great hip-hop records which makes zero sense of all time yes. But hey,
1: <laughs> yeah i remember i wanted to record it why me just because turning point recorded the lp there i had no idea i didn't know anything about it i called them up though and
2: yeah it could have been the close place ever <laughs> yeah. yeah you're just like i think shit. it was just like i think because he did the uh They did the mouthpiece and the hands tied stuff there too. Okay, Okay. that's why. But yeah, yeah, it was a jersey. It was a it was a place in Jersey. Yeah, I mean that's and me. I wanted to always wanted to record and I never have record with Brian.
1: Oh, dude, we were stoked because I was like,
2: like that was another reason I was pumped when I saw the the in my eyes demo. I heard they're gonna be on Rev. It said Brian did it. It had it, it checked all the boxes. Like Jason and I talked about, like this you know before you guys came on just about like of that era like in my eyes was definitely my favorite of you know out of all the bands from that time because of a lot of the stuff we talked about just like the the lyrical content and the design and and just the presentation and everything but Um, it was
1: kind of turning point it was more turning point than the other bands were but with a little, but it also had that hard edge to it. Yeah, so if the shows were still loved, heavy, yeah, but. Yeah,
2: I loved 10-yard fight. I totally love Floor Punch. Like, you know, I think Floor Punch was great and so fun, but also like I wasn't a big sports guy. So the imagery and stuff was kind of like whatever. And I liked that, you know, the M.I.I., st- you know, the name even, you know, it's a nod to Minor Threat. Like that was my wheelhouse. Yeah. like the dc stuff and you know on the second record covering the faith
3: like all that just checked all the boxes for me all that i mean all the ds de- there's probably not a lot if you like in the music but like those i i i probably first learned guitar through fucking tony iomi and eddie van halen and randy rhodes like that that's how old of a dirtbag like my dirt bag era was like those things <laughs> and iron maiden and then it immediately was like whoa everyone in DC hardcore is the Eddie Van Hal- there's like 12 Eddie Van Halens right like every yeah yeah like Michael Hampton and Brian Baker and uh Gee and if it's like it's yeah. fucking pretty amazing like Lyle Preslar and Franz, scream. Franz from Scream, Jason Farrell, like all those people. And then also, then you're like, oh, wait, they're influenced by Captain Sensible. And then I'm like, oh, fuck, that's the sickest guitar player ever. Now, I don't think that translates into any of that music specifically, but it was all like, like, I don't know, I think if, if you sometimes you can have a big gumbo of all these things you like and it just needs to slightly like it'll just slightly the recipe will be tweaked a little bit and i think if it's i think sometimes it just slightly being in there works a little better than if it was like okay this guy likes the faith that's very cool (laughs) yeah right well jason do you think it's time for a
1: hot tracks let's, let's not kick them just yet let me ask two more questions What's what's the cost stand for? K O S T.
3: Oh, this is great. Do you already know this? I know know the answer. Yeah, but (laughs) I remember. Go for it, Damien.
4: Uh, The Knights of the Straight Table. (laughs) So dumb.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So elaborate uh, on that a bit.
3: Oh, it's just we would just come up with stupid shit to make ourselves laugh. Like our publishing company was called the Good Guys Publishing. I saw we had, that we had the song consider the cost and I, we had some stupid joke about like, there was the Knights of the round table. And like, when we'd go out to eat, it would be the Knights of the straight table. It's fucking stupid shit. And it was like, wait, that actually, there's the word cost in the song. Cause when you're in like a band like that, like everyone wants to name the song, some truncated version of a lyric, like, why don't we call it consider the cost? You know, and you're like, yeah, we could, but the cost is way sicker and dumber.
1: You know, yeah. so. <laughs> yes. So another question, this could just totally be me, but what did you think when the hate breed record perseverance came out?
3: It's a word, dude. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not like an MMA dude, so I'm not really in that. Like no, I'm I not, know I'm not into like inspo quotes and like <laughs> like gym gym <laughs> motivation. So I don't know. I mean that band's sick, dude. Like they're cool. Yeah,
1: they're awesome. But I saw that you had played with them. I saw that in my eyes played with hate breed around 97 around when the demo came out. And then, and then when that hate breed record dropped, I thought, Oh man, like the in my eyes song. So that's, I don't know.
3: Yeah. But yeah, if was- you're, if you're able to like, make, sh- like, I don't have the brain to, to like, I don't have the brain to, to, to go, you know what would we'll really get guys fucking up in their workout yelling perseverance like i don't have that brain i don't know how to like say fuck you i won't do what you tell me or like chickadee china the chinese chicken i don't my brain doesn't come up my brain just comes up with like very linear simple things you know um or like songs about california and being funky like i don't my brain doesn't work like that but i think people who hear a nugget in something else you know what i mean like think of like Fucking face to face, just being like, oh, that's a cool descendants part. We could probably turn that into a hit. Like I there's something about that because we're all just taking different parts, you know what I mean? And there's like there is some artistry to being like, oh, and that shitty straight edge band yells perseverance, people like that. Like we could run with that and add some flames and hammers to it. Like, I mean, that's cool, man.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I actually do have another question uh before we get to the hot tracks. Um, so I'm looking at the the layout and, you know, the um, I always loved how very Italian, you know, you have Papalardo, Gennardi, um, Neil St. Clair. I remember being like, there's a lot of cool names in this band. <laughs> uh, so Neil, who's a, actually a patron, he's in our discord. He's on this record. Um, and then. How long? How shortly after this did you guys have a, a lineup change? Because then Newman is on the second album,
3: right? After the the Rev tour. Remember, okay. Daniel, When when remember when Neil got a scooter. <laughs> Wait,
4: well, when when we when Fast Break became Shoes. Shoes, yeah. when shoes entered the mix with Fast Break, yeah.
3: Because Neil well, Neil got a scooter, and I remember him being like which was fucking dope. He was like, um, I'm just more into this fast break thing. And like, I'm probably done. I, I don't want to misquote him. Not that it's like super fucking, it's not, we're not on like a meet the press or whatever, but I remember him being like, I'm probably done with the straight edge thing. And I'm more into like scooters and fast cars and what fast vehicles or whatever. Yes. And so <laughs> we were like, we have to get someone. And then and then we got someone in the band. that I don't know how a dude showed up in the band with a Paul Reed Smith for a little bit. And that was kind of fucking stressful.
2: <laughs> what, New, Newman had it? Oh, um, fuck no, no. no. Will, Will, uh, Will from the Trust.
4: Yeah, Will Trust.
2: Oh, okay. So from, if you had somebody in the interim.
4: I don't yeah. think any, there was any other guitar player on the record though, Anthony. Right? Was
3: it all you? Yeah, it was all me for sure. Yeah.
2: On on this LP. On
3: no, nothing on that, not- no, on that LP, Neil played for sure. No,
2: yeah. he, he wrote some. Oh, stuff. on nothing to hide.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing gotcha. to hide. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Because I, I, I always, you know,
2: being seventeen when this came out in here, and hearing, I was like, oh, this guy must not be,
3: must not be Straight Edge anymore. That yeah. must be why he's <laughs> out of the band. You know,
2: well, um, pretty
3: much. Pre- I think he preempted it. You know, I think he like got ahead of it. Good for him. Then he didn't pull the, uh, you know, the secret yeah, zipper. No nah, he wasn't, <laughs> was
4: yeah.
2: but uh, I was and I was fine because I loved fast break too. so I was just like, all right, well, yeah, now we'll yeah. get you know fast break and in my eyes and we'll have two bands. but um, yeah,
3: and I don't want to like I-, I think there was like there's like drummer sharing tension, but we loved fast break. and it was also cool when they were kind of like wanted to do other shit and just go and like because we we loved playing with them all the time. We could have very easily. Done a fast break tour, right? But they wanted to do their own shit and figure out their own shit. And I thought that was really cool too. And and important for them because like they were pushing, they were pushing themselves really hard. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then they ended up, you know, I don't know when we'll get to it, but they have a record on Rev uh as yeah, well. Yeah. It's pretty it's a pretty a polarizing release that I happen to enjoy, of course, right? But um I know some people were a little taken aback by the change in sound. Yeah, I, mean, I
4: mean, I love Cast Break too. I mean, we were all like kind of living together, hanging out all the time. Um, we got to do an episode on just the Rev Tour that we did. I mean, there's a lot of good stories there with Better Than a Thousand and- And uh, and Speak. Oh my God.
2: <laughs> that would be a good bonus episode for sure. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Jason, do you think it's time to kick the- uh- Let's do it. I want Jason to go first. Oh shit, you can put
1: me on the spot? Yes. Um. Well, when I was younger, hold on a second. I need to pull up the track list. I suck because I, I have, I'm bad with song names. So when I was younger, a little too late was my song. Like I fucking loved that song. I would play it nonstop because the octaves that shit just used to get me. So you know, then that way that Turning Point does. I love that track, but I just can't fuck with um through the motions i love it i just love the drum rolls and the chorus and then when it hits the tired i'm so tired you can't help but like love that part so that was
3: good for like uh west would do that part a lot which was fucking pretty awesome like that was just like right right for the guest vocal situation
1: i remember him doing
2: that at the last show
3: yep well that was that's That's my hot track, too, Jason. Is
2: it? Dude, it's hard We we don't always agree to. And I have a clear memory, and I just watched it again last night, prepping for the episode of that last show. And just the vibe was so awesome. And Wes singing that part. And this is like when American Nightmare was first really popping. And it was almost like, I remember being like, why aren't American Nightmare on this show? Even though there was already a ton of bands. So it was really cool. Like, he came out, and he did that part. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my hot track is through the motions for sure. Yeah. Like
4: what, what was the inspiration on that one, Anthony, like kind of, what were you going for? Cause I, I think something interesting about difference between is like, it maybe because I was like part of it or there, I mean this, I mean, in my eyes overall, I've always just seen as like Anthony's project. He's always been at like the head of it all, with, with the lyric writing, the production and the, and the ideas, but it's funny with difference between, I'm like, there's certain parts where you're like, oh yeah, that's like, that's like the Gorilla Biscuits. That's a turning point. Like you can hear, and I mean, because I was there and we were listening to, oh, that's kind of like the side by side, you know, And then there are certain songs where I'm like, oh like well, what and then you know, it it doesn't stay all in one plane plane though, And it's like, and something like through the motions, I'm always like, ah, oh, what was Anthony? Like what was the inspiration there? You know
3: that was Greg's shirt was the inspiration. It was like, gotta write a fucking need something like tempo wise to switch it up. And I was like, how much can I do within this? Like, cause you can't play single notes, you know, like I would love live. I would do like pull-offs and hammer-ons cause I was like, I want to do a song that's like inside out one part and swizz in the next part, you know, like that, like super fast syncopated picking, um, in the I'm tired part. But then the, the intro part is definitely like, Oh, okay. Inside out. Like, inside out through sabbath or something you know what i mean like i was so fucking into symptom of the universe that song and one of the one of the songs on this record i would just play symptom of the universe mosh part or the main riff for a mosh part and no one would notice we were doing a show in new jersey and john hiltz who did all the sound at the time who was like you know a very clever fella and he didn't he was very disinterested and he was like (laughs) yeah Played Symptom for the Mosh. Cool. <laughs> and I was really psyched. I was really psyched that he noticed that. But yeah, that thing. And then the lyrics were that song was totally about like that was a topical song. Cause I was like, I don't care if I'm going to see um, you know, Stereo Lab and they're singing about fruit or some shit. Like, that's cool. I want Stereo Lab to sing about things I don't understand. And like cool, oh wow, they're referencing Truffaut or some shit I don't know. That's great. But like in hardcore, when it like everything became like word association and shit, like they're like a cat and jazz song where they just do the alphabet or some shit. like that shit really bothered me. And uh, I was like, I'm gonna write a song about like what what's wrong with? I felt like there was like a little like there was like pretension attention happening, and everything was getting a little too fucking clever. And it was like, let's let's just do something that's very earnest, you know, and which is insane as an adult to like look back on that, but that was like a very earnest, like, all right, enough with these fucking corny metaphors, like let's just do something super direct, you know.
1: And it works because sometimes you know? that people go for that approach and it doesn't work and it's not cool. But that is, yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm old. I always thought like the breakdown reminds
2: me. me of like judge. A little bit but then you
1: got the killer feedback at the end you love feedback and that shit ends beautifully
3: yeah that's the inside out sandwich because at the end you got to add the feedback and shit yeah Yeah, that is that's definitely the hot track for sure
4: what anthony would you say there's a song in here that directly speaks to your split with 10 yard fight
3: definitely not because that was like i didn't want to write a diss track because that's like In my head and and then like being so angry, I was like, you can't you can't even like acknowledge it. You know what I mean? Like you just gotta fucking because they wrote a diss track about me. And I was like, I think their record came out after difference between because I I knew it was coming. Which which song do you remember? Frame of mind, because that was the name of my zine. You know what I mean? Mm. So I was (laughs) like, nah, fam. Like there's diss tracks about other shit on later records but not about them because i was just like nah this like if it references that then that makes it corny it's just got to be about like this other world you know what i mean right
4: i I kind of feel like that's what it, it wasn't like this direct competition necessarily between the bands or anything we sort of coexisted and that that was actually what i was thinking of before that i couldn't remember at what point did we sort of like bury the hatchet and then kind of start playing shows again together and
3: stuff I think the, that back to school jam that you did the epic flyer for, it was like, I think that was the first time where it was like, we're going to have to all be in the same place. And like, it just makes sense. I don't know. It was like, it was definitely a big thing. Cause there was like, before we, cause I flew, we flew out of, we flew to San Francisco from Philadelphia and I drove down to Philadelphia to fly out on the same flight as you to go visit Chuck and there was that 10-yard fright show, the first show without me in New Jersey. And me and Pete went and stood in front and turned our backs to them, which is fucking insane. And then, like, <laughs> and then like people were like, and there's a photo in like, I think in Matt Smith scene of like us, and I'm like looking like a real asshole. Like I got I'm like got my hand over my mouth, like looking like I'm thinking about poetry or some shit. Yeah. Like so petty and ridiculous. But we you were young.
2: You know yeah. what I mean? Like, not dude. that young.
3: Not that young. You know. Yeah, what know? Like, I was still, like twenty. Yeah, but that's that's still young.
2: <laughs> but uh, frame of mind, I, I looked up was on the back on back on track, yeah. which came yeah. out
3: in '97. I remember tripping because I was like, "They really fucking wrote a diss track. Like, what the fuck? Like, but whatever, it's cool." Yeah. <laughs> that's why I didn't want to do it because I thought it was corny. But you read into that what you like. Hmm. <laughs> so what's your hot track I was going to pick through the motions too but I'll pick something different um I'm definitely not picking this is our time because like just saying that makes me think of that song and how long it is it's it's like playing the entire instead catalog for a song it's so fucking taxing it is it is actually because like, I, I was thinking about it when
2: I watched the last show footage it's just like it's kind of a longer song especially when the intro is is coupled in with it
1: but it gets an awesome it always got an awesome reaction i I love the song yeah yeah it's awesome but i i whenever i listen to it i think about how hard it must have been to re-record the vocals for that song when he has to do the we'll look back on these times as the best days of our lives i would just think of being in the studio and then trying to have and then having to re-record that part and try to make it sound as good as it did on the first yeah, we should we should have read
3: we should have left that one in the dirt, man. That was a bad idea. But I mean, that but that was like the fucking. I said earlier, I'm really bad at at coming up with like a thing that people like. But like that was such a gimme. Like that was such a referential. Like we're not in the past. This is our time. You get it. And like people like that was just simple enough that people really love that. So. It felt like we had to do it or something. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I really fuck with conversation drifts because like it was the last song we wrote for the record for sure. And I was like hella into early New York hardcore at that time when it was like like I just was like oh there's something so like I I really love those like harmonics and really fast like riffs and I knew Pete could like if the if the chords changed a lot. Pete would sing differently. It would sound faster, even though it's the same tempo behind it. And so I was like, I just want to end this record with like a fucking ripper. Um, And it was like, okay, like let's modernize something must be done. We'll just change the, the format of it. You know, like what if something must be done was a little more positive and whatever. And like, and then that, like the idea in my head, because I was always thinking like of the next thing is like, Let's end with a really hard song. You know, like you've been, there's all this melody and then let's end with a ripper and then that will segue into the next thing. And the next song we wrote was Welcome to Boston. So that's like the headspace. So I'll pick that one. Fuck it. I love
1: Welcome to Boston. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. fucking love it. I love the Rebirth of Hardcore version the live version captures this just, it's just, I mean, what can you do though? You're live and it's going to sound different than on in a recording, but the vocals just sound kind of more unhinged on the, on the live version.
3: I like that live version too. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I mean, I was going to say conversation drifts through the motions. Actually like actions fall short is just super fun one. Always fun to play. So like kind of made me smile when I listened to it today. And then, like advice taken, like did we even ever play that live? I don't think so. Yeah. And that, but that was, that one was like, oh shit, I forgot about this one. Like the shorty, like this, like, I don't know. That, that, that was, that was a, uh, uh, a good one to meet with I mean, that.
2: That one has yeah. the, you do the, uh, you got you, the sick bass. You do the right? Arthur. You,
4: yeah. You got the Arthur yeah, yeah. Full of biscuits. Yeah. 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 Bass. So, yeah. That's what's funny too, because I kind of like, I mean, a lot of this, like, I, I just, I was I I I wouldn't even consider myself a bass player until like five years after this record, you know. So I was still so new to it, and Anthony wrote you know the major like the most of the bass lines and stuff. So I was just trying to do my best, and then I was like listening to the record, I was kind of like ah oh, like all right, the bass is like kind of ripping, you know.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. You know, dude, the sure. bass opens up the record, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that that, that, that
3: speaks to Brian start. Brian that brows Brian like do like a salad days thing or something, you know, like he just added in, like sometimes there's a little too much sauce, but I think like that shit adds personality, you know? And like, I don't know. Like I thought when we're talking about sequencing, I was like, Oh, the record has to start with that song because the first lyric is the last time that I faced you. So it's making you think back and like, fuck, what happened before (laughs) what happened before this? You know what I mean? Like, Back to Star Wars, right? Like the first one's actually not the first. sequential, one, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's
3: like the same shit, you know, like kind of like you're picking up, like it was the idea was like to bring you into this conversation, you know, and which is very different than like, um, here's the thing that you have to do, do it really hard, do it for you. You know, like instead of fucking shouting instructions, it was like bringing you into this conversation of like how two people would actually interact, you know? And and the feelings, you like a, a lot of the lyrics are like coming from a very Costanza experience, right? Like George comes up with what to say later. So like in songs, you can rewrite what happened, you know? And fucking, you know what? I didn't fuck up last time that I faced you. I, I've actually did this shit, you know? So, so like, yeah, all of them are like a Costanza situation. <laughs>
4: Yes. <laughs> oh, <gross. laughs>
2: all right. Well, we've been looking forward to this one. Um, because like I said, that we're at the point in the catalog where now all of us like experienced it in real time. Um, which I think is always pretty cool because you can kind of you know draw from a little more experience than like like I wasn't around for a
0: What's up y'all? Javier here. Listen, um, I just wanted to remind everyone that this is the end of the episode if you're listening to this on a streaming platform. But if you want to hear like another hour, I mean, most of you, most people do want to hear another hour. So if you're interested in hearing another hour of me, Greg and Jason talking about in my eyes, Rev, Hardcore in general, What you gotta do is head on over to Patreon.com, or head to whereitwentpodcast.com, actually, and um, find out how you can become one of our Patreon supporters. And while I'm here, I'm going to read a list of our current top-tier patrons and say thank you once again. Billy Tennell, Brandon Gavell, Brian Busky, Brian Skiffington, Brooklyn Cesar Falcon, Chad Kaplinger, Cliche John, David Palmer, Dirk Focus, John Cowell, Quiet Keith, Nate of Head to Wall Fame, Ryan Walker, Ryan White, Tad Peyton, uh, Tim Shear, Tyler of the Life and Death Brigade, and Siren Records. Yeah, uh, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you next up ep- next episode. I, what's I need some more coffee, man. I'll see you next week. Bit of bow.